in Isaiah 6. Remember I said, Isaiah is telling all this stuff and going over all these things, kind of like a kid that spent the afternoon at Holiday World. And he's not going to say, first we went in the gate and they had to check mom's bag to make sure there weren't any bombs in it. And then we went past that front gate where you rent the stroller. And then we went past the statue of Santa Claus. And then we went down the hill past the fountain. And then we, you're not going to hear that, right? You're going to hear, we went on this roller coaster. We saw this show. We all saw this high dive act. I got to hug Holla Dog. I don't know if Holla Dog's still there. Blah, blah, blah. And all this all over the place. So that's why in Isaiah chapter 6, you get this vision. And biblical scholars are not in agreement about whether this happened after the prophecies of 1 through 5 or if this is a, um, a moment where Isaiah is saying, okay, now let me tell you how I got called as a prophet. And you know, it doesn't matter, really. Um, because if you worry about that and you miss what happened in this, you really missed it because it's awesome. So, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, you're already, you're already set off, right? So, King Uzziah um, is at a definite place in time. We know when he was the king. It was around 750 B.C. Um, we, know, we know right when that was, and then I say about, because it could have fluctuated by maybe two or three years. I mean, that's, that's how close, how accurate they can guess when, when he died. And Isaiah was a nephew to one of the kings. He was a grandson of, of another king. And so he is in this family, but he's not royalty. So he has some authority to speak to these guys. He knows who they are. He can talk to them. They can talk to him. And he can interact even though he's not in line to rule. Does that make sense? So in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. All right, so Hebrew language is really funny, and it's really cool that they say things over and over again to emphasize, like, really, really big, right? We, we would say the same word over. It was really, really big hamburger that I had yesterday for lunch. Uh, we slept, I slept a long, long time the other day. You know, we repeat ourselves. This, he was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. It's like, this thing is high. This is just really exalted. That's the other part. It's not that it's, you know, was it 2,200 feet? Was it 5,000 feet? Was it 10,000 feet? It's not so much about how many feet up it was. It's the authority of it. So the he saw God and God was on a throne ruling and he was ruling higher than anything else can rule. So it's not just high and lifted up that Isaiah is looking, you know, hurting his neck. It's that this is exalted. This is, this is authority. This is the biggest, the baddest, you know, ruling over all. The biggest throne of all time. The train of his robe filled the temple. So in ancient times, in Isaiah's day, and even before that in different parts of the world, a king would, 
have, you know, he'd have what he'd wear every day, his normal stuff, but then he would have his robe and he would put that on for something special to show off. And like, you know, every once in a while there'll be a royal family wedding and they show the bride's dress and they're like, look at how long the train of her robe is, blah, blah, blah. And it's this big white robe, right? They didn't work that way. Um, let's say I'm the king and uh, I conquer Jim. When I conquer Jim, I'm going to take his robe from him. And the royal seamstress is going to sew Jim's robe onto the end of my robe. And then I go fight and I go down to Hammerhead's church encounter and I slay Stu. I take Stu's robe off and we, my, the royal seamstress sews it on to the end of that. So then, um, gosh, I, I had his name in my head. It's, it's the church over where, um, where um, oh gosh, where Barker goes around, Barker and the, the um, Ray, Ray Bar- Becker Parkway, there's a church right there and that says, we love you on the big wall, Jesus and, and us love you. So let's say that guy, that pastor comes over here to conquer me. And here I am sitting on my throne and he sees on the end of my robe, Stu Armstrong's robe. And he's like, dude, I cannot beat Stu. He's got Stu's robe. He beat Stu and... Let's say Tyrone Edwards comes over to beat me up, right? He, says, he sees that I have Jim Carnahan's robe sewn on. And he's like, I can't beat Jim Carnahan. There's no way I'm going to be able to beat Dan Sullivan because he is wearing Jim Carnahan's robe and Stu Armstrong's robe. That's how kings would do. And so Isaiah sees God high on a throne, high and lifted up, exalted over all the kings, and his robe fills the temple. He has conquered so many kings that you can't even walk into the temple to see him because king after king after king after king after king robe is attached to God's robe. Isn't that awesome? Like, wow. You know, like you walk in, you know, uh, every once in a while they'll give some honor to some general or something, and he's just got all kinds of color over. Imagine if, you know, they go to give the Medal of Honor to a guy and they can't even get to him because of all these medals just go down the floor and they're just in this heap all over. That's how God has so much conquering. He's so powerful. Well, remember in the intro to Isaiah, Assyria is on one side, Egypt is on the other. They're, they're about to be crushed by all these different kingdoms and, the, and they've already taken Samaria and they've already taken the northern tribes of Israel. There's only one tribe left out of 12 tribes. There's only one left, little Judah. And here's God, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he has reigned and conquered so many kings that you can't even enter the throne room. Because the robes are just piled. Wow. That's not all. So Isaiah sees God. High, lifted up, huge robe, fills the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Now, the funny thing about the word seraphim is we don't have this word very much in the Bible. And we just don't have this word very much, period, in ancient literature. And so a lot of people are like, what's a seraphim? Well, it's one of these. Each had six wings. So whatever a seraphim is, it has six wings. With two wings, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So there's this creature. There's another place where seraphim are compared to fire in that they're temporary, that they can just form like a fire, can just start, and then they can disappear. There's another place where, where seraphim uh, are covered with eyes, like they can just see everything and they can see it all. They're flying, they're covering their faces. So if you go before somebody that is just super honorable and super important, there's a show of honor in some cultures, and it was like this in this culture, that you wouldn't look them in the eye. That to look them in the eye was offensive. That was a little bit of an aggressive move. And so this seraphim has two wings covering his face because he's showing honor to the Lord. Now, sometimes in Hebrew culture, your feet are your private parts. And so there's some thought that in this, they're being so humble that they're keeping themselves covered. They're trying to show modesty. It's a show. So whether it's, whether it's feet or, um, or their, their parts, they're, they're trying to be humble. They're trying to sh- hide themselves. They don't want to show anything dirty or, or, um, or un- unhonorable to God. Does that make sense? So they, it all carries the same, the same um, emotional meaning. That they're, they're trying to not be embarrassed. They're trying to not be embarrassed by God and His glory and be humble. And then they're also covering their feet, covering, covering themselves, parts they don't want to show, out of honor. So just hold on a minute. God is so holy that this six-winged fire beast, the other thing that's awesome, we don't know how big it is. One day, one day I was studying this and I was just meditating on this and thinking through and, and I thought, I always picture these like in the old paintings in the wall where there's like, you know, there's the guy standing there and, uh, and you know, some saints or some holy people or Jesus and then there's the, the, these beasts. These beasts might be as big as this building. They, they might be huge. We don't, we don't have any description of size, of scale of these things. And they're so amazing, but they are humbled before God. They, they, are, they are worshiping Him. And they're worshiping Him with deep, deep, deep humility. They're not worshiping Him with arrogance or pride there. Oh, listen to what they say. One calls out to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of this building that they're in, this temple, this king's castle, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. 
So the seraphim, when the seraphim talks, the strongest part of the building, the threshold of the entrance, trembles. Can you imagine? Shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Um, One time I was in an earthquake, and for about 10 minutes after the earthquake, dust just hung in the air. Because every, like, no offense to whoever cleans in here, but see every little slit in the ceiling? There's a little bit of dust up there. And I just want you to imagine if everything shook, how all that dust would go into the air, right? Well, I'm not saying Isaiah's wrong and that the temple's full of dust, but the voice of this guy speaks just brings, um, it brings smoke and that the whole place fills with smoke because this fiery seraphim creature has spoken and shook the threshold and whoa, just... The other wild thing to think about is, was it how he said it or what he said that shook everything? Because he said he might have said it with such a voice that it shook. But remember when Jesus is about to be arrested and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And a whole platoon of army guys completely falls over on their backs and is knocked backwards. There wasn't an earthquake it was the power of what he, his actual words that he was saying God's divine name blew those guys back. And so it's almost the, the power and the holiness of what this seraphim has said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's almost like the weight of his words has shaken even the foundations of God's temple. So if you saw all that, what would your reaction be? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Isaiah, he says, I said, woe is me. I am dead. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Lords. He is feeling like that seraphim. He wants to hide his face. Why is all this so worth dwelling on? When we say, when we sing a song, when we pray, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the the whole earth is full of his glory. We are saying the words of that seraphim that shook God's temple. And we can say that all the time. We can always look to God. We can worship Him. We can be driving down the Lloyd Expressway and wondering what in the world's going on with the traffic up ahead. But you know what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of His glory. And it might not shake the Lloyd Expressway and it might not part the traffic. But that's what the angels in heaven are saying. And so when we say it, we are saying it along with them. And I just wonder if we say it enough, if we think through that enough, how much it'll shape us and change us and and alter us to really realize, gosh, 
whatever is going on in my life does not change the fact that God's robe is so big it fills the whole temple. He's the Lord over all. The King of kings. So he says that one of the seraphim flies to Isaiah with a hot coal from the altar before the Lord, puts it on his mouth, burns his mouth, purifies him. He says, your sin, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is something that could only happen on the Day of Atonement, and that's only if if everything was done exactly correct by the right priest, and it was done the right time, you had the right kind of lamb, and it all worked out just right then for that day your sin is atoned for until you, you know, kick the dog on your way home. And now forget about it. Here's Isaiah. This angel comes and does it. It's not the day of atonement, but he's got authority, right? And he does it, and your sin is atoned for. The very next thing Isaiah does is he hears the Lord's thoughts. Whoa. There's a place where Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. There's a place where Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and teach you everything. There's a bunch of stuff that I still have to teach you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and teach you everything. And on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, they, they, they spoke to people in languages they didn't know, and people understood. And 3,000 people became Christians. And they went out to all the nations. They all went home and carried the gospel to all of those places. Here we are. The very natural next reaction when your sins are atoned for, when Jesus has died for your sins and you realize that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, your very next thing is to hear God's thoughts. And he hears, I heard the voice of the Lord, this is in Isaiah 6, 8, saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isn't that awesome that Isaiah would hear God wondering something? Who should we, oh, who should we send? Who should we go? Who will go? And Isaiah so moved that he went from, woe is me, I am dead, to your sins are atoned for, says, send me God. Send me, please. I, I will do it. I'm at your service. I'm willing. And then God says, all right, go. Go, tell him. Say to him, keep hearing, don't understand, keep seeing, do not perceive this big, long section. And it seems kind of weird when it, you read, like, why would God send Isaiah, verse 10, make the hearts of the people dull, their ears heavy, their blind eyes Otherwise, they'll see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand and be healed. See, God is sending Isaiah on a mission that he knows will be a failure of a mission. But, if he didn't send Isaiah on that mission, God would not show that he was compassionate and merciful and forgiving. But God already knows about the people that are going to hear doesn't say anywhere in here that God made them not listen. And it's really easy to get a little, you know, uh, predestination juice going in here and think that. But it doesn't say anywhere in here that God has made them not listen. Make the heart of the people dull. 
Isaiah is going to say that because right now the people are apathetic and they, they don't care about God. And they're worshiping whatever they want and they're dressing themselves up all beautiful and they're getting their own glory and they're not seeking God for it. That's who Isaiah is going to be talking to. And Isaiah is going to talk to them in hopes that they would give up all that nonsense and follow after God. And if they don't listen to him, they're just going to dull themselves more. They're going to, they're going to turn up their radio louder so they can't hear him, right? The car is falling apart, and they just turn the, car up, they turn the radio up louder so they don't hear the muffler falling out of the car. It's not that Isaiah is knocking the muffler out of the car. He's not making them evil, but they just don't want to hear it, and he's revealing that to them. So let's skip down to chapter 7. Uh, Ahaz is afraid, and he is afraid. I talked about this some last week. He's afraid of these other countries coming, and they're all going to invade and they're going to take over. And Isaiah says, oh, don't worry. Within 65 years, those kings won't be nothing. And he's like, 65 years? Come on. And he says, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask the, ask the Lord for a sign. Ask the Lord to show you that he's true. And Ahaz says, I will not ask. This is Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And this is so funny. Because all of a sudden, Ahaz is quoting scripture and being very pious and religious and upright. Even though he's built an altar to a foreign god, uh, he's moved the altar that's in the temple out over to the corner, and he's using his own homemade altar, and he's just ignored God in all these different ways. And now Isaiah says, Ask God for for a sign, and he'll show you. And Ahaz says, I will not put the Lord to the test. The truth here is Ahaz doesn't want the answer. He doesn't want God to give him a sign. Because if God gives him a sign, then that's going to show that God is true, and that's going to convict Ahaz of what he's doing wrong. Right? How much does this come up um, in modern days where people... They want to do what they want, and they're going to do what they want. And so they find various religious ways to justify it. And, you know, this is why I'm going to do this. And if you say, okay, what? I was talking to a guy this week, and and I was like, we can either argue Christianity versus the world, or we can just talk about Jesus. And if we bring Jesus into it, it's hard to use like this kind of religious cover-up thing of, I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, he doesn't want to listen to the Lord. He wants to hide behind culture and this idea and that idea. So Isaiah says, all right, I'll give you a sign. <laughs> too late. I'm giving you one anyway. Verse 13. He said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary me, to weary men that you would weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the sign is Emmanuel. And um, this is really wild. As you read through this, so Matthew would refer back to this, that the virgin would conceive and have a child, and his name would be God with us. And that is the prophecy. But for Isaiah, the prophecy is the next part. 
is the next part after this. So in ancient times, um, you know how we do now? We do have the maid of honor or the matron of honor. And she's the matron of honor if she's married, but she's the maid of honor if she's not. And it doesn't matter if she's 62, she's still the maid of honor if she's not married, right? So they use the word virgin for any young lady. And this is Isaiah's wife in this case. And this is Isaiah's first child. And so that's how all this works. He says, um, give you a sign. He'll show you curds and honey. He says all this stuff. And then you skip down to where Emmanuel is there. And when Emmanuel is born, verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Remember how he said in 65 years, those guys are going to be nothing. He says, okay, look, I'm going to give you a sign. There's going to be this child and I'm going to name him. God is with us. And by the time he's this age, these kings aren't even going to be anything. So never mind 65 years. I mean, how do you keep track of 65 years? We're going to have it, this kid here. And when this kid's old enough to know right and wrong, right? So however, I mean, I know some people don't know right and wrong and they're in their 20s. But theoretically, when he's like a young teenager or even younger than that, that's when all of this is going to come to pass and it's going to happen. And then it says a bunch of other things. Uh, if you skip down to 20, verse 21, In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk, he'll eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. This is a terrible thing. Um, it sounds good, but it's terrible, because what he's saying in the context of this is that Assyria is going to come and they're going to wipe out everybody. And there's going to be so few people in town that they could all eat from one cow. That one cow will be enough. A man will keep a cow and um, because of the abundance of milk that they give, that cow, that one and only cow is going to have so much milk that we're just going to eat curds because there's going to be so few people left. He goes on into chapter 8. Chapter 8, it's the same thing. And um, Assyria is going to come and they are going to strike hard and fast. Isaiah, have another kid. And so Isaiah has another kid and his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Poor kid. And uh, so this is some awesome Bible trivia. If you ever get quizzed, this is the longest word in the Bible and the longest name in the Bible. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And um, if you really want to score, just drive around in your car and say Maher Shalal Hashbaz over and over until you get it and you nail it and then you can bust that out. Is there a name for your order, right, at Arby's? What name should I put on your order? And you can say Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So Isaiah has a kid named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And he inscribes his name on a stone. And his name means swift to the spoil and quick to the plunder. And he's talking about Assyria. 
and how Assyria is just going to come in and they're going to move fast and they're going to take it all away. Uh, a new, a more modern a way that we would say this is easy money, right? Easy money, no sweat. They're just going to come in, take everything right back out. Um, when I worked at the rescue mission, they did a fundraiser for uh, golf playing, you know, for fundraiser for the mission. And they had this one hole where you would, they had some kind of gambling thing where you'd, you'd pay $10. And if you, if you landed it on the green, I'd give them their $10 back. But if they didn't land it on the green, then I got to keep the $10 or whatever. And I remember standing with this, a guy that was a resident at the mission and uh, he was helping me out and all these guys came up and they were, I don't know what they were like CEOs and really big time dudes, whatever. And uh, this, I said, Hey guys, this is the money hole. So you give me, you give me money. And if you land it on the green, I give you your money back. I think maybe I gave them more money back. Maybe it was a, a betting. I don't remember. And, um, so if you land on the green, you get your money or otherwise I keep it. And there it is. And this one guy paid for everybody, like gave me a hundred dollar bill or something. And he said, this is for, every- I paid for all of us guys. We're, we're all doing it. And they all walk up. And this, this homeless guy that's living at the mission next to me, he goes, easy money. <laughs> he called those guys. Not a one of them landed on the green. He, he could just, he knew from the beginning. That always sticks in my head of just that guy's statement of how easy those guys were. That's Maher Shalal Hashbaz is... Assyria is going to come in and they're going to wipe out Jerusalem as easy as it is to get a hundred bucks from four CEOs. Just simple. Just, and it's really sad if you think that through, right? Because Isaiah is saying, Assyria is coming because you're not worshiping the Lord. You need to turn to the Lord. Don't turn to Egypt. Don't turn to your witch doctors. Don't turn to any of these things. Assyria is going to come in and they're just going to shave us like a razor. They're just going to wipe us out. We're all, there's going to be so few of us left. Old father McW- or farmer McWilson's cow is going to feed all of us because there's going to be hardly any of us. So he names his kid Marshall Al-Hashbaz. You skip a little bit further down and the hope starts to begin. This is in Isaiah 8, 11. The Lord said, he said, don't, don't walk in the way of these people. There's some portions of this where God really cares about his people. And then you realize he really cares about Isaiah. And he gives some encouragement just to Isaiah. Don't call conspiracy all the things that these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be in dread. Don't be afraid of the things that other people are afraid of. Instead, this is Isaiah 8.13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Let him be the one that you're, oh gosh, who do I need to please? Who do I need to make happy? Who do I need to honor? Is it, is it my coworkers that are all laughing at this horrible, horrible joke? And I, if I don't laugh at it, I mean, that's, that's where I am, right? If I don't laugh at this joke, then are they going to look down at me or look at me like I'm a prude or, oh, we shouldn't tell jokes around the pastor? Or am I going to 
give in to that, right? Am I going to live my life before man or live my life before God? And he says, Isaiah, stick with God. Fear God. Skip all the way down to, well, let's go on chapter 9. A Messiah is coming. Salvation is coming. And this is at the end of, of chapter 8 where Isaiah is kind of getting just straight from the Lord. And it's not necessarily a message for everybody, but Isaiah shares it with everybody. But it's more just comfort for Isaiah. There will be no gloom for you, those that were in anguish. In the former time, he you know, brought all of these things. But now, verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. This is all quoted by Matthew talking about Jesus being born. It's really exciting. Verse 6, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a, a translation that says, He will shoulder the government. And I thought that explains it so much better. Like the government will be on his shoulders. We kind of think that through. and We're like, what does that mean? He will shoulder the government. Remember, the, the king sits on his throne high and exalted. And his, the train of his robe fills the temple. He will carry every government of this world. He will sit on David's throne. Now, Isaiah is saying this to the people that he's also saying... Assyria is going to come in so fast. You think you're tough, but you're easy money for Assyria. You are going to be just swept away. All your junk is going to get carried off. Um, he keeps talking. We can skip all the way down to chapter 9, verse 18. Wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briar and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. They'll roll upward like a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. It's important in here that even though God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment, and even though God is saying, I'm going to inflict this on you. The real horror of what's happening is that God is letting people hurt each other. God, he is not doing Sodom and Gomorrah. Here comes the fire and brimstone and everybody's wiped out. He is letting Israel be free to be Israel and worship foreign gods. He is letting Assyria be free to be Assyria and be bloodthirsty killers and wipe them out. So this is what happens in Romans 1 and 2. That people sought after created things rather than the creator. And so God gave them over to their sin. God said, you know what? I love you. And I want to show you how free you are to love me with all of your heart. So I'm going to freely let you love whatever you want to love with all of your heart. And off they go to chase after idols. It's really wild. I mean, how the, sometimes the justice of God is to let the people do what they want 
and receive that, the consequences of that. He doesn't always do it. I mean, there's other places in here where he intervenes and he stops it, but, but that's, how, that's how this whole judgment is coming. So then Assyria is coming. So Assyria is used by God to clean Israel. It, Assyria must be awesome, right? If they're being used by God. No, not at all. <laughs> so go to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize the plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God's saying, Assyria, you're powerful, and I'm using you to go against Israel. But, chapter 10, verse 7, he does not so intend, his heart doesn't think so. Assyria's heart doesn't think we're serving God by going after Israel. Assyria thinks we're awesome. We're better than Israel. Let's go. They're taking pride in their own self. And his heart is to destroy, to cut off nations. Assyria says, are not my commanders all kings? And he goes through a whole name, list of names. I've carved out I've carved out idols. I've taken over nations. So Assyria is boasting and bragging. So all of a sudden you think, oh dear. Remember what Isaiah saw in chapter 6? The Lord who reigns over every kingdom. The train of his robe fills the temple because he's conquered every nation. What do you think is going to happen if Israel, who he loves, doesn't respect him? And another nation, Assyria, puffs up and says, we're awesome. We are fantastic. We can even beat Israel. It's not going to turn out good for them, right? This is what Assyria says. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, I have understanding. If you know the Lord, you know this is just not, you don't say this in the presence of the Lord, right? Um. I remove the boundaries of the peoples. I plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit in thrones. That was the wrong word to say in the context of he who sits high and exalted on the highest throne, right? My hand was found like a nest. The wealth of the people, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, I've gathered all of the earth. There was none that moved a wing or opened their mouth. Assyria is just becoming more and more boastful. So God says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Like, you're my tool. Why are you bragging? And then I thought, wait, I have an axe. We can do this. So this is my axe that I've had for, well, I'll just, I'll let you tell him how awesome he is. Tell them about how many trees we chopped down. This is ridiculous, right? Is this not ridiculous? This axe is awesome. It says grease on it, A-G, Andy Grease, 
because all of my tools say Greece on them because he's my buddy. And when we left for Central Asia, I gave him all of my tools. And then when I came back, he didn't have to, but he gave them all back. So all my tools say, I say Greece is the best name in tools. That's my joke. So this is awesome, but it's only awesome in my hands. It's a craftsman, which means it's guaranteed forever. I can take it back to Sears. Oh. Look at how much less awesome it just became. So for this axe to boast in what it's done, what's going to happen when this thing breaks? I'm going to throw it out and go buy another one. It's no big deal. It's just an axe. So as, serious, as silly as all that comedy was, that's how silly it is for Assyria to brag about how awesome they are. That's how silly it is. You are beloved by God. I am beloved. God loves me so much. But anything I brag about that I did that was awesome is as stupid as us all sitting watching that axe talk. It's just worthless. Now, I love it. I'm not going to throw it away. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to squat. I'm not going to chop concrete with it. But where's the boasting, right? It's in the Lord. And um, that's what this whole, this whole section of chapter 10 is saying, Assyria, I'm going to use you. You are really going to put it to Israel. You ain't nothing. When I'm done with you, I'm going to throw you away. I'm going, to, I'm going to just toss you away. Verse 11, or chapter 11, speaking of trees and axes, um, chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse is the father of David, right? So the house of David, the kingdom ruled by King David is going to be cut all the way back until it's just a stump. It won't even look like a tree. It's just a stump. And out of that stump that, that nobody notices, nobody can see unless they walk right up to it, is going to grow a new branch. A new tree is going to grow. And that branch, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It's the same guy that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 9. The Messiah. Out of this completely cut back thing. You guys, you got to repent, but you're not going to repent. Assyria is going to come, totally chop everything down. There's going to be nothing but a stump left. There's going to be so few people in all of Israel. We can all eat from one cow and get fat. But out of that stump, a branch is going to grow and it's going to be incredible and it's going to be mighty. And when that branch grows, there's going to be so much peace. Verse six, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child is going to lead them. Like these were all things that you really wanted to keep separate, right? If you had a sheep you had to watch out to keep the wolves away from your sheep. 
If you had fattened cows, you wanted to make sure leopards didn't come anywhere close. And you certainly, certainly are going to keep your little child away from all of them. And there's going to be so much peace in the land that this branch is going to bring such incredible peace that wolves and sheep will be together and they won't even have animosity towards each other. This is Eden. This is Eden-level peace. Um, it says in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, that everybody ate vegetables. There, apparently there were no meat eaters. Even lions, you know, something, somehow, they, they all just ate plants and nothing ever died. It's going to return to that level of peace. It goes on. It, it tells more details about it, but... But the gist of it is such incredible peace at such a deep level that, um, that even, even little babies can walk around wolves and leopards and fat cows. I mean, fat cows are dangerous, right? Fearlessly. No, no fear of it at all. Incredible, incredible peace is going to come. Finally, I want to end with verse 12, or chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a great... You know, talking about uh, driving in your car and praying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Chapter 12 is another great little, you know, write down on a note card and pray it. Pray it through. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away so you could comfort me. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's true. And what's even awesome, I, I used to have this buddy, he's just an incredible evangelist, and um, he said, if, if God always wants to answer the prayers that he wrote down in the Scripture. If you don't know what to pray, look in the Scripture for a prayer and pray that, and God loves to answer it because you know he's already answered it before. There it is. He goes on to say, with joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you'll draw water from wells of salvation. There's so much salvation that God offers you. Again, he says in Romans, where sin increased, grace abounded even more. There's, God will always outgrace. Since Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins, God will always outgrace your sin. He will always top it. You can drink, from, drink water from the wells of salvation with joy. Wow. Uh, I went on a mission trip one time. We had skids and skids, like bull, uh, not bulldozer, fork truck skids of Starbucks Frappuccinos in bottles. And we would drink those things and we would only drink it halfway and throw the whole thing away and go get another one. And we just didn't care. We were just wasting, 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 wasting. Because uh, Starbucks had misimprinted the, the, the label. So the label was off. So the inside was fine. And they donated it all to these uh, Amish folks that were doing hurricane relief. And we just, we, could, we were like, there's no way we're ever going to drink this all. And we we're just... That's the image of this. Drink with joy from the wells of salvation. God has so much salvation. You just drink half a glass and throw it away and grab another bottle. Go. 
Just keep going. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You've got to hold on to that with Isaiah 6, where he says, keep telling them until they don't listen. Keep telling them until their ears are shut. What's he telling them? He's telling them, verse t- chapter 12, God is so great. He wants to rescue you. He wants to save you. Proclaim it. Sing for joy. Uh, great in your midst. Emmanuel, God with us. I'm so convinced that God is with us. I named one of my kids, God is with us, Emmanuel. Meet him, right? That's how certain it is. I'm so certain, right? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Anyway, chapter 12, um, it, it sums up what's happening in Isaiah. He is worshiping even though nobody's listening to him. Even though people are rejecting him left and right and worshiping false gods, in Isaiah's soul, as he, like in, verse, in chapter 10, it said, revere the Lord as holy. As Isaiah is doing that, this is what is coming out of Isaiah. Sing praises. He is our salvation. I will not be afraid. He was my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And um, so run an experiment this week. And just see if, if that happens to you as, you as you picture the Lord high and exalted, lifted up, surrounded by seraphim, ho- saying how God is holy and not dwelling and not worrying about what other people think, but just seeking the Lord. Um, you'll see the same thing bubble up and, and percolate out of you too. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for working in us constantly. Thank you for being our strength and our song and our salvation. Thank you for so mightily dying on the cross for all of our sins and rising from the dead forever so that we don't have to fear death and we can just honor and glorify you. We praise your holy name, Lord. Amen.